This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Now that there are artificial intelligence news anchors, are AI teachers on the horizon? Hardly, say, are human teachers, but they would like AI to take over some aspects of their jobs. Plus, a group Nazi salute in a prom photo is the latest subject of internet outrage. But what should educators' reaction be when their kids do dumb, offensive things? Hint, outrage doesn't work. Those topics and kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. Used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk and are very eager for Thanksgiving break to start. So let's introduce them. Paul Donovan, what do you teach? I am a high school math teacher. Elaine Jarden, what do you teach? I'm a school counselor in training. And from Chicago, Lynn Osborne-Simmons, what do you teach? I teach science to uh, diverse learners in Chicago public schools. Before we get started, just a reminder, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Friday Cheat Sheet, at nowronganswerspodcast.com. The Friday Cheat Sheet gives you a preview of what we'll be talking about on the next episode and also a review of some of the interesting education stories that caught our eye during the week. It's your teacherly take on the world in your inbox. Sign up for the Friday Cheat Sheet at nowronganswerspodcast.com. To our first topic, China raised some eyebrows recently when the state-run broadcaster there unveiled what it billed as the world's first-ever artificial intelligence news anchor. Now, plenty of occupations have faced competition in recent years from robots and AI, But then again, many people fashion themselves indispensable and think there's something about their work that requires a human touch. Take news anchors, for instance, (laughs) which is my full-time job. Or teachers, for that matter. After the Chinese AI news anchor made headlines, Andre Perry argued in the Heckinger Report that teaching is one profession that, as he puts it, quote, can't be taken over by artificial intelligence, end quote. Well, is that true? Could we automate teaching? And would we want to automate teaching? Are those questions even out of date? Some would say teaching, at least some aspects of it, are already automated. So let's have that discussion. Let me quote Andre Perry at greater length because he's making an argument I think you hear teachers and indeed people in a lot of professions make about why their job is needed, why they are necessary. Here's Perry, quote, if there's one job that can't be taken over by artificial intelligence, it's teaching. Sure, you can memorize frog parts online, but that will never compare to dissecting one in a laboratory with fellow students and a quality teacher at your shoulder, end quote. The idea that you can't replace the human interaction in a classroom. Do you buy Andre Perry's argument? I ask the teachers. (laughs) I buy the argument, and it's not necessarily that I have a particular defense of of teachers, even though I am, I just don't think it would work. Anybody can go on Wikipedia or one of a number of websites and just get facts, but teaching requires more than that, especially when it comes to getting to know the students, and an AI is never going to be as good. So I was just thinking, like, my students, so many of them are lacking in social skills as it is, and I think they really need that feedback, and without the feedback, they don't have any room to grow. Students learn from our experiences, and they need that person-to-person interaction. And, like, my school is a magnet school. 
So a lot of them, when they come there as freshmen, it is a huge culture shock to see all these different ethnicities and hear different languages and LGBTQ. And I just think about when they're out in society and when they enter the workforce, what are they going to do when they have to encounter all these different type of people? Just got a big question mark about homeschooling and as well as online learning for those under 21. I think the human aspect is really vital. The thing I think could be interesting is I totally agree that AI will never be as good as an effective teacher, but I wonder if there are times when it might be more effective than an ineffective teacher. <laughs> like, truly, well, I think true. that there are some <laughs> teachers for whom AI could be more effective than they currently are. Uh, yeah, I mean, that also gets to the point that I think Paul and, and Lynn were making. There is a real, at least from the sense I'm getting from your responses, a, a real human element to teaching that can be both very beneficial or, <laughs> if it's lacking, can be harmful or even counterproductive in the classroom. Perry says there are certain things about teaching that will never be given over to AI, and you have said some of them, one-on-one interaction, relationship building, uh, the teaching of higher-order thinking skills. Um, But I mean, just to, to play devil's advocate, if you can teach a robot to find news and read scripts, I mean... Up until a week ago, I thought my job was safe. I'm just leading a Socratic discussion that far off. <laughs> I mean, it's impossible for us to predict what is going to be possible, yeah. right? So at this point, I would say it doesn't seem possible, but who knows? I just still think it's like you can have someone read something, but like when I have my kids read, I make them annotate. Okay, so what does this really mean? It's like not just like a script that's in front of them or just like a text that they have to draw facts from like they I really make them think so I think where does that come in with AI that's a really good point and AI and, and the technical learning tends to be pretty based on rules of logic in order to to make further decisions and if there's any group of people that are not logical it would be teenagers <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> Perry in his column actually does acknowledge that a lot of technological advances in the classroom currently, things like online learning, Khan Academy, we have two math teachers who are probably at least somewhat familiar with that or other or other things like it. Uh, digital lessons, um, at the college level, there's things called massive open online courses, MOOCs, I think is what they're called, um, all of which can be put under the umbrella of personalized learning, um, kind of a catch-all term for that, that this is kind of an automation. It's already here. Teaching is in some respects, being automated. Do you consider developments like what I just said um, helpful for you as a teacher or an infringement on your, your duties and responsibilities as a teacher? I personally love Khan Academy as a supplement. I never use it in the classroom, but I recommend it to students if they need some extra review or if they didn't understand it the way that I explained it. But I don't, I don't ever use it as the lesson. Yeah, and is it fair to call that, in in a sense, automation for a part of your job, for an aspect of what you do? Or an automated tutor, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Elaine, you've uh, been a math teacher in the past. Yeah, I also don't think it's Sal Khan's intention to replace math instruction or yeah. science instruction or whatever. I think you're exactly right. He sees it as a supplement, and that's the service he's providing. So that's where it gets risky is when people decide to use it as a lesson or as the first exposure to something. That's not what it's designed to do, and that's why it doesn't land. Uh, In this broader AI discussion, and this idea that Andre Perry raises that personalized learning is, in some ways, an automation of jobs that teachers do. Um, Let's take one example that's that's been in the news recently. There's an online learning program called Summit Learning. It's backed by Facebook, has some Facebook money in it. It was developed in a California-based charter school network that, full disclosure, uh, I used to work for and actually worked one year um, helping to pilot an early version of this 
this online program that has since become known as Summit Learning. Kids learn content through online modules, take automatically generated quizzes. In a lot of ways, it's like Khan Academy in that students are given the responsibility of learning the content on their own in front of a screen, but then they're given quizzes about it. Now, there has been a lot of pushback recently to this program. That's why it's been in the news. Some 100 kids at a Brooklyn high school, for instance, walked out in protest over their school's use of the program. A Connecticut school district dropped it because of the volume of parent complaints. Um, Again, to your point, Paul, maybe this isn't necessarily um, artificial intelligence as we envision it with a Chinese news anchor AI, um, but this is, in a sense, automation. Why do you think students and parents um, are pushing back against this? I think a lot of them realize that it's not the same thing as having an actual teacher in the classroom that they can interact with in real time. Even the questions are kind of tangential. The teacher can feel them and have immediate feedback right there where it's not, that's not the case for these, uh, at least not yet, at least for the, uh, for the students. And so I think they rightly feel that there's something missing and that's, they could just sit at home and do the computer if they wanted. So, why, uh, why would you, why would you even come to school? <clears throat> and there's a real, there's a real discomfort with the idea that that level of human interaction that we have become used to is not there. Right. Well, and kids will complain, you know, like, oh, so and so doesn't teach me, and I'm like, well, what do you mean that they're not teaching you? And they're like, oh, all we do is stuff on our Chromebook the whole time, and they're yeah. just looking at us while we're on our Chromebook, and yeah. like that's from middle schoolers, and we're not using the Summit platform, but that's just even through Google Classroom. Right. So, I mean, you have you have one to one at your school, so you have a lot of, I mean, you have a lot of lessons and a lot of content that is, I mean, I guess digitized. Or well, yeah, like, because that's the push, right? The district or whomever is like, we invested in this technology, we need to use it, and I feel like the pendulum's gone too far now instead of looking at how can technology enhance what we're doing it's like we must use technology and so they're losing you know i mean they're not having discussions in their english classes in some cases they're just using discussion boards or whatever and like that's okay sometimes but they're missing a lot of those soft skills and what do you think a kid means when he says you know so and so is not teaching me they they don't think that by sitting and watching a video or whatever on their chromebook that that's how they're learning i mean and this is just what middle schoolers think. Like, they want a teacher to be engaging with them. I think all three of you now have uh, said uh, these types of technologies should be or are best used as supplements. I think all three of you have used that, that exact phrase or that exact word. But do you feel like your the push is to have it be used in a supplementary way? Or do you feel like you're being pushed to use it more in, in a more primary way? I see it as kind of a patchwork. It depends on the district and the administration. I used to teach at an alternative school. There was what, some of those programs. For the for the kids who just don't work well in social situations and who are always in trouble in school, then I've seen them show up and then go to a room and spend most of the day in front of the computer to get their classes. And that actually worked for them much better than being in a classroom. So there are certain cases in which this could be a fine solution, but other than that, it would be a supplement. Are there ways that your jobs uh, right now at your schools are automated, and do you feel like this is good or bad? Well, I know there's um, a lot of English teachers use, like, because Newzella, something like that, and sometimes it is, like, for the whole period, they're reading an article online and answering questions, and, and I just, like... 
and they use it with freshmen. So sometimes they're engaged, but a lot of times it's like, hey, come on, you know, you know, it doesn't it doesn't fare well with everyone, but it does spend like a whole hour doing that. Like I, I really feel like, it, especially like in an English class, okay, let's read, let's dialogue, let's you know, exchange views or something like that. And I, I think a lot of teachers use that, and they don't use it every day, but to use it for an entire period, I think the kids kind of like are almost brain dead by the end of the periods. A lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them. I think in counseling, like none of my job is automated. <laughs> really at this point. Like I was trying to think through all of that. There are some parts that I think would be more efficient if they were. But I don't think, I mean, as a teacher, I had sometimes like, it wasn't a ton of automation, but there were tests that they would take that would automatically communicate with my grade book. So the score would be entered right away. And that actually was a huge time saver to not have to go through and enter those things manually. But I'm having a hard time thinking of a lot of stuff that's automated for us right now. And that speaks to the fact that your job is I it's mean, all interpersonal. Yeah, talking talking <laughs> yeah. to people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, thank goodness I, it's not automated. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> not even with an AI. Right, Paul. What about you? you? I don't really use any. I'm by no means afraid of technology, and a lot of the teachers at school use the Google Classroom. I don't simply because there's. It seems to work best when there are articles or books or passages to read and essays to write, and I've got math problems. Just saying, hey, go to Google Classroom and read this instructions and work the math problems, that doesn't really work. And so far, the administration has not told me that I'm supposed it, to. That's it, interesting. Explain to me why being a math teacher, for the, for the content that you teach, that, that 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 type of online instruction doesn't work. Because when I was an English teacher, I would say the same thing about English. It's like, well, you, you know, you gotta, you got to read and have discussions and, and be in Socratic seminars, and we can't do that online. And... Uh, so why math? What, what is it about the content that you teach? that? It- because there are about one million questions that students can have that I wouldn't have thought of when I was making up the lesson. And if it's all on the computer, then they don't have anybody to ask, and then, then it just gets frustrating. Uh, well, when the robots come, Paul, you better polish up on that explanation for your job. Uh, <laughs> I'll work on that. <laughs> uh, but Elaine actually started to get into it, but what, are there parts of your job that you would like automated? I have to do 504s, and I would love if a robot could schedule my meetings, make sure teachers what? fill out the scales, like all of the And 504s, pre-meeting. just in case someone doesn't know support plans for students with medical diagnosis. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of scheduling that goes involved in that. There's a lot of documentation that you need before you have the meeting. And like our high school counselors have secretaries that do that for them. But in middle school, we don't have that. So I would love if that could be automated so I could spend more time with kids and their families and less time chasing paper. Yeah. Lynn sounded like she had a reaction to that. (laughs) Isn't that? Yeah. That's how we feel too, Lynn. We we don't. (laughs) Secretaries. Oh my goodness. We don't hardly have anyone really t- to make mm-hmm. copies for us even we we're all on our own but i think that i would like my ieps to be automated i mean at one point in in chicago we had it where like you don't have to reinvent the wheel every year you just kind of update it and that's the way it is in most places but then the district decided oh there's too much copy and pasting so you have to do a new one every year you can't just update it so that's really a frustration oh, yeah. It takes anywhere from, like, what, three to five hours to do one. So so I hear yeah. copying. You could have a copying robot. I'm sure that was in the Jetsons at some point. <laughs> well, you know, when this Chinese AI news anchor was introduced, it made me think as a someone whose full-time job is being a radio news anchor, 
it made me actually sit and think, okay, well, what is my job? What is the essence of my job? What is it that is really my purpose? And I think actually based on some other things that I read too, and in response to that news story about the Chinese AI news anchor, it, people were saying, well, you, you know, you can't have a robot be a news anchor because people, there is a, a, a trust involved with watching someone on the news or listening to someone on the radio, that there's a trust communicated. Apply that to, to teaching. What, what is your job fundamentally, essentially, that you think defines what your role is? I think students trust me to read between the lines for them because things might occur in the building and they say, why do we really, like, you know, sometimes there's a lot of testing and they say, what does this test mean and what does it count for? Am I going to fail if I, you know, some big standardized test, if I don't do well and I'm stressed out about that? And just things like that that they're, like, really stressing over or feeling overwhelmed. You can't just go to a computer and say, I'm feeling overwhelmed. And, and so when you have, like, crises... How is AI going to step in and, like, you know, really support the students? Yeah. Uh, Elaine, uh, Paul, what is it about your job I mean, that is essentially necessary? What What is your job fundamentally? I think in a lot of ways, fundamentally, my job is keeping kids safe. There's a lot of things either that are outside happening to kids or that are within kids that we help them work through and support them with. And without us, some of them wouldn't be able to learn. I think... People that think that automation is going to take over have the view that a teacher's role is to slot facts into kids' heads, uh, that we're just a human computer. So if we're a human computer, why can't we just get a real computer? We're kind of like what Lynn and, and Elaine were saying. Teachers are there to handle things in between the facts, whether it's to scope out the emotional um, stresses of individual students or to answer the why questions, I think it's going to be a while before an AI would ever be able to answer why if, when uh, kids ask some of those. So it's uh, the teaching part is the, the slotting of the facts into the kids' heads is probably no more than half of the job. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Well, on to our next topic, kids do stupid things. If we needed a (laughs) reminder of that, we got it big time this week. When a month-old prom photo from Baraboo, Wisconsin, surfaced on social media, you've likely seen it by now, a large group of boys, most of them white, all dressed in tuxedos, are giving what appear to be Nazi salutes while laughing and mugging for the camera. The boys, it later came out, were juniors at the time. The picture was taken last spring, which means the boys are now seniors. The photographer, who took the picture, by the way, says he had told the boys to wave goodbye to their parents. You can take that for what it's worth. Predictable hand-wringing and forehead slapping has ensued. Jack Holmes, writing in Esquire, said it was a sign of the, quote, rapid normalization of hate speech and right-wing extremism, end quote, in America ever since Donald Trump was elected president. In Vox, Zach Beauchamp writes that our schools aren't doing enough, noting that only nine states require the teaching of the Holocaust. That, he says, has left a void for many young people today who only see Nazis as cartoonish bad guys in video games and movies. Fair enough to those arguments, which we can talk about, but I wanted to start this conversation with something else. What are educators' duty when something like this occurs? When kids do dumb, even terribly offensive things, what is your job? 
as their teacher. So, briefly, let's just dispense with your gut-level reaction to the photo. Um, you've had a chance to look at it in preparing for this conversation. Hey, what did you notice? What do you see? What about the picture stands out to you? I saw it on, on the Twitter feed, and one of the first comments went underneath it. Uh, well, I think one of the students said, we even got the black kid to give the salute. I don't know exactly what's going on there. I don't know. Some of it was peer pressure or like some of them were saying they didn't maybe understand the the impact of it. But I'm just sort of confused by the whole thing. I mean, they're young boys, and it's based on, like, ignorance because, like they said, a lot of them didn't, don't know what the Holocaust, Holocaust was. They don't, you know, even, like, when I talk to students, I want to know, like, what are you learning U.S. history? And I talk to them about, like, Holocaust, slavery, industrialization, the Great Migration. They were looking at me like, what? So they don't, they don't know their own history. There's a lot of conversations that are hard to hear, but there are essentials. Uh, we don't have like survivors of slavery and Holocaust and World War II around like we used to, but I think it, should, it is documented and it needs to be taught, but it needs to be th- taught thoroughly and not just factually. It needs to be taught based on experience from people who have lived through these ordeals and like like just from occurrences the past several months, anti-Semitism and hatred is alive and well and it has no place in our society. So it stood out that like these boys have no idea what's going on, really. At one point, you look and say, "Are they waving, or are they being just like sixteen-year-old boys?" You know, who are like someone got them to do something stupid in the picture, which happens like every year at a high school. Hey, let's do something stupid in the picture. They remember this for years, you know. But they, I think, they just I just saw like ignorance, like they don't understand the ramifications of what they're doing. Yeah, Elaine, what did you see? For some reason, it really bothered me that they were all, like, in their tuxedos prom. I mean, the whole thing is bothersome. But then I was thinking, like, if it looked like they were just at school on a normal day doing this, like, would it be as gross? And I think a big part of it is, like, when they're dressed that way, they look like adults. And then I'm like, oh, they're going to be voting soon and they're going to be working soon. And it's that's scary. They didn't seem as much like kids in my eyes as much as, like— Adults who should know better. Um, well, as uh, Paul alluded to and I talked about in the intro, the, the outrage to this online at least was pretty immediate and pretty widespread. But I guess uh, what I wanted to know from teachers is literally what would you do? Like if these were your students, what would you do? And, and, and I asked that knowing that you've probably dealt with some sort of stupid or offensive behavior in the past. Maybe <laughs> not this, but um, how do you deal with with these students, would you try to talk to them? Would you do, would you address it in class? You know, once the social media firestorm blew up and and they in the school kind of had to face it down. I mean, wh- what would you do? Well, for me, I mean, it's obvious that this was pre-planned. That they had already planned on doing. It's, they didn't all just happen to coincidentally throw that sign up. If I if if I was a teacher at that school and I recognized some of my kids in there. I'm sure there are plenty of teachers, principals that have had whole school conversations, whole class conversations. So I would probably find the ones that I knew and talk to them one-on-one without anybody else around and see if uh, they could explain uh, why that happened and what they were thinking. I agree with Paul that I think that it needs to be a one-on-one conversation and not a whole group conversation if you want it to land. 
Why? What's the difference? Well, because there's obviously some kind of peer pressure going on in that photo if they're all doing it and they're all going to stick together and be this united front if you try to address them as a whole. But if you go one-on-one and you can talk to them just person to person, it's more likely to be successful. And what would you say? It kind of depends on, yeah, it kind of depends on how well I know the kid, right? Because I think there are some students who genuinely may have not realized how offensive that was. They think it's really funny. And then there are kids that you know, that they know exactly what that means. And so I think the conversation is different based on who the kid is and what their experience with the topic is. Yeah, Uh, Lynn, what are you thinking? Well, I think about the population of my school. Now, if that occurred at my school and there was like a group of white, mostly white students that did that, it would be a different story because they would be the minority. The white students would be the minority. I think uh, students in my school, when something like that happens, and if, especially if it was like a group of white students that did something like that at my school, uh, they would the students in my school would want to have a class discussion. So then I think they would take a different turn. And I was kind of asking, like, how do they feel and why do they feel that way? Do you feel safe? And I was just trying to make sure that they would feel safe. And I could always bring an administrator in or a counselor or somebody in and have a talking circle or something. But I think in my school that would be a very different story since if there was, like, a group of white students that did that, that they would be a minority. So I think my students would feel, uh, feel unsafe. How would you uh, try to interact with parents, or would you try to loop parents in? What would you say to them? Are you obligated to try to have a conversation with parents? I, I, I would just say my school is so large, and parent involvement is very small, so I think that that would probably be a discussion at a local school council meeting, so that would be a different environment altogether. Our counselor, our resident counselor. <laughs> I mean... I don't know that having a conversation with their parents when they're juniors, seniors now, is going to really do a whole lot. My observations with parents who are kind of called on the carpet for their kids' actions is that a lot of times they become really defensive and not supportive. And I think this would be just like that. That's fascinating. So why do you why do you think parents have that reaction? Like in, instead of saying maybe naively I would think, okay, I, I want – to own up to my kids' mistake and, like, make sure that they understand that they were wrong, but also intuitively I can understand why they get defensive. So mm-hmm. why, why do you you see that more often? Yeah, we do see it more often, and I think a lot of it is wanting to protect their kid from any disappointment or discomfort that they might experience. It's that whole mama bear trend that's out there. You know, I'm going to ferociously fight for my child, and they don't see that by doing that they're enabling them. They're not empowering them. And as a counselor, I'd be tempted to staple a copy of all of these pictures to every letter of recommendation that I were to send to a college for these kids. But I don't think that's ethical. (laughs) So I could make my own personalized letterhead, right? Like C reverse. But no, but I think um, I just don't know that looping in parents with juniors and seniors is going to get you the same results as looping in a parent of maybe like an elementary age kid. Lynn, you had sound like you had something to say? I was just thinking, I guess a question to Elaine, I said, don't you think the apple doesn't fall that far from the tree and this type of attitude or or maybe linked to some type of hatred or hate talk or something, don't you think, I would think that would need to be addressed. And I mean, I mean, you don't have to point a finger at a parent, but you can let them know this is not tolerated at our school. Yeah, I think the school can come out with their position about what they will and won't tolerate, and that should come from an admin, which was which is good. But I don't know that we're really going to be changing anybody's mind 
as and I'm not trying to be negative, but I just you know, if it is coming from a place, uh, you know, if a kid is raised in a family that believes throwing a Nazi salute in a junior prom photo is acceptable and the kid really believes that, like me calling them as the school counselor is probably not going to change their mindset. So that brings up the question with the full caveat that this happened months ago. This happened, you know, when it originally happened, it, I guess, went unnoticed and it was picked up by an independent journalist and posted to, to Twitter this past week. Should these boys be punished? Uh, should they face any kind of sanction or consequence? I don't know. Or are they already doing that? Or is that already happening through the kind of social media firestorm that's occurred? Like I said about the letterhead. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, Lynn, go ahead. I think Chicago, there would be some probably like severe reaction because we're like, one, you know, we're still one of the most uh, segregated cities in the U.S. So I think there would be some outrage in our city. I think all types of things would spin off of that. So I think it might not be such a big deal in that, in that area of Wisconsin and Chicago. I think it would be a lot of, like, countermeasures taken, and I think they would probably force uh, the city and CPS to take some type of punitive action. I don't know. As teenagers, I mean, how, how long should this follow them? I mean, should this should this be something that follows them the rest of their life? I don't think so. I mean, they are kids. And I think that if they truly are people who believe that that action was funny or acceptable, even after caring adults reach out and talk to them and support them through that decision, they're going to do something else later on that's going to bring this back around to them again and back around to them again. So I think for kids for whom this is a true problem, like we're going to continue to see it coming back and for those that maybe it was just a dumb impulsive teenage thing like it'll be done i've had a lot of success talking with kids about things they can control and can't control after they say something that's racist or whatever it might be and about how it's it's okay to make comments about things people can control but not about things that they can't and for middle schoolers that seems to work pretty well like they understand on a fundamental level like nobody can control the first language that they learn to speak like that's just something about you or nobody can really control what color their skin is that's just something about you and i think that that helps make that distinction i'm also thinking still about these high school boys and like bottom line people can grow and change and i'm not trying to make it sound like because they made this choice in this picture that they they never will. I just want to make sure we recognize that, too, that this picture may not be the full summation of all these kids. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I think as teachers, you're almost obligated to think that, right? Right, right. Yeah. My school is usually, is usually pretty good about stuff. There have been a few, there has been once or twice where I ran into a situation where a kid said something that was semi-racist, definitely hurtful, and I asked them about it. And they actually said, well, the president said it. Really? Yeah. Well, that's not the first time we've heard that on this program. <laughs> where, I mean, where yeah. teachers are kind of reporting what their kids are saying. What kind of position does that put you in, Paul? That's a tricky one because you can't just say, well, the president of the United States is an idiot, even though that's what was in my head. So then I, I, tried, to, I tried to say something like, well, you have to use your own common sense and sense of empathy and don't just parrot something somebody else says, even if they're in a position of authority, you've got to be able to think for yourself and see if it's true. And again, I don't know if these students really meant it or if they were just parroting Trump because they thought it would be, I don't know, funny or whatever. But but that's what I try to do is I try to get them to think for themselves instead of being a copycat. Yeah. Uh, one final question. Is it 
to what Elaine said earlier, is it hard to to have empathy and compassion for for students who do things like this? I think we have to approach it professionally. I mean, one thing, you know, I think teachers like in, in Chicago are under fire because of all this. Because we're so racially segregating, there's a lot of racial tension all the time. And now there's this big thing with the Oak Park River Forest documentary and videos and things that are that are going on and hate crimes that are going on at school, which is not part of our school district, but it's very close. We, I think a lot of teachers feel guarded and like our responses are being kind of monitored by administration. They're trying to say, well, you should have done that and you should have done it quicker. You should have, you know, so I think a lot of teachers feel like extra tension because we're being monitored as such. All right. Well, before we get to kids these days, uh, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. The FDA this week issued sweeping new tobacco enforcement measures, including restrictions on selling e-cigarettes to teens. The new restrictions will require stores to sell vaping products from restricted areas that cannot be accessed by people under 18. This does not go as far as an outright ban that many anti-tobacco groups were calling for. The FDA says vaping among teens jumped 80 percent last year and 50 percent among middle schoolers. Washington, D.C. Public Schools is set to become the first district in the nation to allow parents the choice of non-binary when indicating their child's gender on enrollment forms. Starting next school year, families enrolling their children in D.C. Public Schools will be able to select that choice in addition to male and female. This comes as the Trump administration has rolled back Obama-era guidelines for schools on accommodating transgender students. And many educators are familiar with the scourge of sleep deprivation affecting their students. Now, neuroscience researchers at UCLA say they have found what they call a deceptively simple solution. Get kids better pillows. In a study involving 55 adolescents, so not that huge of a sample, and their (laughs) sleep patterns, the kids who expressed satisfaction with the quality of their bedding also reported getting higher quality sleep and subsequently performed better on cognitive tasks than their peers who were not happy with their bedding and didn't get as good a night's sleep. Better pillows, better learning. Those were some of the headlines that we found this past week. Coming up, Kids These Days, but first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency, find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Paul, what are your kids into? Well, Stan Lee, the, the topic of his death was um, was brought up in almost every class, at least by a few students, and then uh, and then there would be tangents, discussions about who their favorite characters were, and then educating some other students who didn't know who Stan Lee was, and so... They were talking about that quite a bit. Were there certain characters that came up the most? Most of it was arguing over who was better. Um, there's not really much of a 
a consensus on who the best one is, but like, oh, who's better, Iron Man or Spider-Man? And so then that would usually devolved into arguments about superheroes. Elaine, what are your kids into? So now I have lunch duty, which I've never had before. And um, well, lucky you—you you got this far in your career without lunch duty. I know lunch it's duty. amazing. Um, and I've been noticing that the kids are eating apples with plastic spoons. And it took me a long time to figure out why that's what they're into, but it's because of their braces. They can't bite into whole apples without popping off a bracket. So instead of doing that, they just scoop at the, because they don't have knives, obviously. So they're scooping at the apples with plastic spoons, and that's their workaround. Wow. I have this image of, you know, the beginning of the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey where the monkeys are, like, battering at the, the black <laughs> pillar. <laughs> right. what I have the, this is what I have an image of. Right. Uh, all right. Well, eating apples with spoons. Mm-hmm. Okay. But there is a reason. I mean, I, I understand that reason. So that's – they've they're innovative. Uh, Lynn, what are your kids into? Unfortunately, they're into vaping. <laughs> so um, – they there's a way you can sneak and do it in the bathroom and the kids are talking to me about hey they're doing it in the bathroom right now and blah blah blah. so i think it's not really regulated like how we're going to deal with this but you know if you're under 18 then like the so our school district is really trying to come up with a way of like dealing with that you know because it just a couple of years ago when it came out one kid did it in the middle of class and said have you lost your mind you know but um he said, oh, no, it's not cigarettes. You did it in class? In class. <laughs> it was, and I was like, have you lost your mind? I said, no, no, no. So um, so they're really trying to, I think, really come up way, like, to really educate students about what exactly it is and uh, how it can be harmful and, like, you know, the restrictions, like, no, we don't do it in our building and blah, blah, blah. So... It's a big issue. Well, maybe maybe that will become harder to do now. Who knows? Yeah. Um, kind of doubt it, but we'll see. <laughs> maybe it'll become harder. Uh, thanks to our teachers this week, Paul Donovan, Elaine Jarden, Lynn Osborne-Simmons. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. Remember, go to our website, nowronganswerspodcast.com. Sign up for our Friday Cheat Sheet newsletter. Happy almost Thanksgiving to our teachers who are taping this two days before they get to their break. And um, once you do, I hope you have a restful break. See you on the flip side. Until then, remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. (laughs) 